You're listening to Rogue Agents, episode 29, featuring No Time to Die. to the 29th episode of the Rogue Agents Podcast, a part of On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast channel, brought to you by our fine Patreon sponsors and White Rocket Entertainment. I'm your host, Agent Delvin, codenamed Dark Web, and joining me as the agents who are going to tell me, first off, what is the most 007 thing that they have done since the last episode is, well, the script says Alan J. Porter. So I will start with Alan and ask Alan, well, first say hello, because I'm not a rude person. Alan, hello. Hello. It's good to be back. And it's great to have you back. And now, what is the most 007 thing that you have done since last podcast? Actually, I guess it's probably sold a bunch of my James Bond novels. I'm trimming down the number of books we got in the house. I'm not sure I needed 14 copies of Casino Royale in different editions, so... I made the hard decision of going through and picking out the four or five series of editions I want to keep and trucked a whole box full of them down to half price books to sell and left teary eyed as I waved goodbye to you let me make an offer on them. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm now down to hang on a minute. I'm just going to do a quick count. One, two, three, four, five, six, six different complete sets of the Flemings as opposed to a ridiculous amount. <laughs> Maybe sixes are still a ridiculous amount. but It only depends on if you feel ridiculous about it, Alan. If you don't, then it's absolutely okay. okay. You know, if you read Casino Royale for the fifth time, the sheaf gets away in the end. Ah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Jared, since you've been talking, <laughs> let's welcome you to the show. Jared Albrecht, the art sale artist, sometimes known as Death Probe. Probably some other names, too, but we won't get into that. Jared, what is the most Bond-like thing that you have done since last episode? You know, it's not much, really, but since Alan has been jettisoning some 007 material, I actually recently ordered on eBay the cassette tape. (laughs) Audio effect there. That's what a cassette tape sounds like when you shake it. For the Living Daylights. Huge favorite of mine. And when I was, you know, developing it as my favorite, listening to it in my youth, I had it on cassette. And I was like, you know what? I want that cassette in hand again to go with my cassette collection because somehow along the years I'd lost it. And I found it for like 10 bucks with shipping and everything. So I'm pretty happy and I'm, I'm just awaiting its arrival. So Living Daylights on cassette. Fantastic. Uh, I'm ashamed that you haven't picked up the Felix Lighter. Some people call it knockoff, but I would, wouldn't. The, the the Living Nightlights. Oh, uh, that, uh, oh I've got that bootleg. Before. I bought it. Yeah. That's the only way you're going to get it. It, it did <laughs> not go <laughs> on the main screen. Click, click, direct click, click. to video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I've got move that. move on to Pat Sampson, a.k.a. DJ Christatos. Pat, welcome to the show and regale us with the most Bond-like thing that you've done since last episode. 
Well, hello, Delvin. Yep, it's good to be on. You know, one thing that I've always liked to do and notice in watching a Bond movie is just, you know, having some drinks along the way in between stuff, you know, and just, you know, I like making a little drink and all that. Shut that ice up. You know, and just stop and have a drink and have some fun. So I've been trying to drink a little bit more. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if you happen to get in a brawl uh, mm-hmm. with a female companion at your side who can kick butt as well. And slam them down with the best of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she can kick butt and she can slam them down with the best of them, but we will get to that in a second. We have to introduce the last of this quintet. His name is Jason Albrecht. We call him Weasel Skull. Weasel Skull is about to tell us what's the most bun-like thing that he has done since last episode. Well, has everybody gone? So you don't need to wait for that tape. I can just sing it <laughs> to you. Sing it for me. I love it. <laughs> oh, Delvin, it's good to be here. Most Bonian thing I did. Oh, I, without a doubt, I'm proud to announce we have another honorary rogue agent who has recently made his way through all of the Bond films. And that is my son, Drake Albrecht, the little weasel himself, has now seen every James Bond movie. Excellent. That is fantastic. Excellent. Is his code name Little great. Weasel? Uh, it is now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if he would approve of being called Little Weasel, but Pretty you know he's not on the show. <laughs> <laughs> he's not here. Is he's he? not on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's not. So little weasel, it is. Uh, it, it, that's a way to stick. If he protests, then it sticks even further. That's all. Yeah. Not that anyone asked, but the most bond-like thing that I have done since last episode, I took a trip to Boston. That's not bond-like at all. I don't think James Bond has ever traveled to Boston in any of the movies, not that I remember. But uh, the one thing I did when I was in Boston was went to the uh, science museum that they have there, which was pretty cool. And they have these things called duck boats. And we drove around most of downtown Boston getting a historical tour of Boston. And then we submerged in the water. This thing like goes from like driving around the street to like this boat hovercraft thing. And I was like, this is like a Bond vehicle. This is kind of cool. So like I took a picture beside it so I could make sure that I remembered exactly what it is. You all know my, my issue with vehicles. We don't have to talk about that now. Um, it's a sore spot. But it was very cool. I thought that it was really cool. And matter of fact, I have a picture of me at the wheel of it because he's like, would anyone like to get in front of the wheel? It's like, me, me. And I was like knocking old ladies over and stuff to get to I the I know some kids whatever. wanted to get up in there. And you're like, <laughs> like throwing them off. The, the fight scene at the end of Thunderball. Get out of my way. Okay. Yeah. So it was really cool. I think I have a picture up of it on Instagram and it was just a cool time. But yeah, that reminded me of a bond like vehicle. So that is it for me. That is it for all of us. And this episode is the 29th episode of our ongoing series on this channel called MI6 Rogue Agents, where we traverse the 007 universe. It could mean books. It could mean music. It could mean video games. Essentially any medium that connects to the bond franchise that we love so much here at On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. But, but, y'all, it's been almost two years. It is time to discuss the latest Bond movie in the franchise. No time to die. But before that, 
I have a question for our rogue agents. In No Time to Die, we were treated to a surprise as Lashana Lynch made her appearance as 007. Gentlemen, pick a woman actor who you would like to see grace the silver screen as a double O. Not necessarily 007, but who has the chops to stand beside the next James Bond? Alan, are you ready? I'm going to go with Rebecca Ferguson because she kicked ass in the Mission Impossible movies as a member of the IMF team. So I'm going with Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson. I'm not familiar with her, but Jared immediately nod his head. Jason, do you know Rebecca Ferguson? I think I know who he's talking about. I know You've that- seen Mission Impossible, the girl in the yellow dress with a sniper rifle. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. She's good. Nice. Weasel Skull, go for it. I got to throw in a pitch for Charlize Theron. I think she's done some great action work, and I think she's got some serious chops. She's mature enough, but still young and spry enough to play the part. Charisse Theron has my vote. The cool thing about now is we always, you know, lovingly make fun of Roger Moore being mid-40s, but look like much older. Nowadays, like I me, mean, like Daniel Craig in this movie, like with nutrition and, and all of that, like you can stay younger feeling and move more young and agile. Just give up things like, I don't know, cigarettes and sugar if you're so inclined and you can go a little bit further. Anyway, Jared, who do you got? I'm gonna go Tom Cruise in a wig, Delvin. <laughs> mm, Tom Cruise in a wig. <laughs> no, for real. Jason Charlie's Theron made me think of Atomic Blonde, which made me think of John Wick, which then I remember how awesome Halle Berry was in Chapter 3, and she's been in the Bond universe before, so why not bring Jinx back and let her whoop some tail? I love it. Let's go with some Halle Berry. Like She was rocking it in in John Wick 3, so why not let her rock it some more in in the 007 universe? Fantastic. Pat? It is hard, but I think Jarrett gave me a good idea, and so I'm going to kind of spin off of what he said, and I'll go with Michelle Yeoh. I wanted, hey, to, hey. With, wanted to see more of her, her action, more of her, but on her side of the agency or something like that, I guess. I like it, Pat. I like it, too. I liked it so much that I was thinking about saying Michelle Yeoh, uh, but I'm actually glad I let you go first, because as the host, I should let all of my people go first. It's just polite. But it gave me an opportunity to look up someone else that I thought would be a good either 007 or possibly an agent. She rocked it as Valkyrie in uh, Thor Ragnarok. I'm going to go with Tessa Thompson. Yeah. She's got she's got presence and she does. She does not seem afraid to kick butt on the silver screen. So if she put in the work, I think that she would make an awesome either companion to 007 as a as an agent or. Maybe uh, donning the 007 herself. Good segment, fellas. I appreciate your thoughts on that. But now let's get to our rogue subject for this episode, which is No Time to Die. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. The world is arming faster than we can respond. Where's 007? I need a favor, brother. You're the only one I trust for this. 
world's moved on, Commander Bond. You a double O? Two years. So stay in your lane. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. The one that works. I thought you two would get along. Name? Bond. James Bond. So you're not dead. Hello, Q. I've missed you. It's the most valuable asset this country has. If you feel yourself losing control, I'm not going to lose. Control. James, you gave up everything for her. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. What is it? You don't know what this is. James Bond. License to kill. History of violence. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. info about the movie no time to die's original air date was october 8th 2021 starring daniel craig as james bond leah sedo as madeline rami malik as lucifer siphon lashana lynch as nomi and ralph fines as m i stopped there because the next one was q and i didn't want to hear jason complain about it the director oh, was careful <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh! I knew it. I saw it. Mm-mm, mm-mm, not yet. <laughs> just going to have to hold that a little bit, just for a little bit longer. Little He's longer. a professional host, right. folks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Jason. The director was Carrie Joji Fukunaga, with writers Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Carrie Joji Fukunaga. Screenplay by and story by, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge did screenplay. The producer was Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. Here is a quick plot description and couldn't have found it from a better place than www.007.com. In no time to die, Bond has left active service and is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix Leiter from the CIA turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. So we're going to take it back somewhat to the rookie agent days as far as the format where we talk about pre-credit scene, credit scene, and theme song, highs and lows about the film, then we'll rate the thing one to seven style. Let's start with the pre-credit scene. 
So Jason, kind of a long pre-credit scene than normal, but you are first up to give us some comments on what you thought about it. Yeah, it was pretty long. It did a good job of setting up the elements of the story. It also paid some fan service to seeing the Aston Martin DB5 again, which we all know and love, and getting to see that in action. I guess the action elements were pretty good. I think they really tried to step it up a notch after Spectre. We've already talked about Spectre, so I won't go into that. But you could really tell that Daniel Craig was in top physical form. He didn't have any of the lingering injuries. And they were really trying to get some spectacular stunts, which I think succeeded. The very opening with a young Madeline in the cabin where we're introduced to the young Saffron. Mm-hmm. That was downright kind of creepy and spooky. And I thought, well shot. All in all, the opening worked for me, although it was a little bit long. It did set the elements of the story, like I said, and it had enough action and entertainment that I said, okay, this is not going to be another Spectre experience. We're, we're going all out with the stunts and the action here. So overall, it left me with a good note by the end of it. Okay, sweet. Thanks, Jason. Uh, let's go to Alan. Alan, your comments. For me, the pre-title sequence actually reflects my feelings about the movie as a whole, that it was well-played emotionally. There was some good acting, some great action set pieces. Jason already mentioned that the, the DB fight Car chase more than made up for the snooze fest of Spectre. It was a really well choreographed thing put together. The motorcycle stunt was great, even if Jill will still not let me buy a Triumph Scrambler and try and do that over our backyard. But Ridiculous. I know. <laughs> that was well done. Beautifully shot. Amazing score. Introduces to one of the best music cues of the whole movie is in that. The road to Matera. The part when they're driving in the car up to the village and stuff in the DB5, and then it segues into All the Time in the World. Beautifully scored piece of music. But the characterization, the total lack of chemistry between Daniel Craig and Leah Sado, didn't buy it, that relationship at all at any point in the movie. Unresolved plot lines, underdeveloped characters. So, yeah, it really was a microcosm. Alan, of- Alan, rein it in, man. <laughs> we're, we're just on the pre No, but you asked me what I thought about the pre-title sequence, and the pre-title sequence was exactly how I felt about the whole movie when it was done. It's a perfect okay. microcosm of the movie. So you asked, I delivered. Of course. <laughs> of so. course, absolutely. Pat, so. your turn. Well, I'll take Alan's take on it and spin it a little bit with a little bit of Jason as well mixed in with it, is that it was lengthy, so you could kind of... If this was like a short feature film or short feature episode, you'd have the beginning and, and somewhat of an end, you know, just ending on that scene of him leaving. And then you get the dots happening to go into the song. But overall, you had some romance, you had action, and then you had some heartfelt things where, you know, he had to let her go and just say, you know, you're not going to see me again. It's like, wow, what a way to leave it at. And yeah, definitely the car chase. How much can that car get hit? And how can you drive seeing through all that bullet written glass and all that? A lot, Pat. Yeah. It can, <laughs> it can get hit a lot. <laughs> and Craig's sitting in the car, just not shaking. Guy just kept there bang, bang, bang at that window, bang, bang, bang. And he's like, You're going to tell me what's going on or what? 
you know, making her sweat it out. I bet I know which Q developed that car. Jason? I was going to say it. I was going to say it. That's why he's driving like that 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> Got to go with the one Jared. that works, man. Jared, you would not do that if you're a host. Naughty, Chaos naughty. Stone. <laughs> oh, he sent that hook out and I bit it. And hook, line, and sinker. Pat, back to you. That, that's all I have to say. All right. We'll give it to the troublemaker. Jared, go for it. As much as I hate using this phrase, especially in a public forum like the podcast, I have to agree with Alan. <laughs> Ooh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, I, no, especially on his highs. I think it's of all the Bond films. And again, I guess I'm speaking broadly across the whole film, but also about the pre-title sequence. It maybe looks the best, like the color palettes, the shots. I think it's one of the best looking I'll keep it at the pre-titles. It's one of the best-looking pre-title sequence. Spoiler, it spills over to the rest of the movie. But it's one of the, the best-looking pre-titles, just as far as color palette, shots, just design, clothing, editing. It's pretty. And the music is also pretty. Like Alan said, we have a show on this very network, Six of the Best. We talk about the music. And, yeah, those tracks are great. Nothing to complain about there. The action's pretty hot, especially the car thing. Can't get away from that. In fact, fun side fact for you guys, since you know I dabble in the world of video games, there was, uh, was it, was it, was it Rocket League? Was it Rocket League? Anyway, there's a driving game where they actually made a downloadable map of that city. Uh, so you can play in it for the game, like 007 downloadable content, which I thought was really neat. Uh, and it looks cool too. So that city is just awesome looking. It looks good on film. It looks good when he's driving through it. So, you know, as far as the pre-tile sequence goes, pretty good. I wasn't big on the length. I like mine to be a little more condensed. But when it's that pretty and it sounds that good, I'll let a lot of stuff go. So, yeah, cool stunts. And I'll leave it there, Delvin. Okay. Only thing I'm going to add, I didn't know what to expect. I think I heard a few spoilers. And, of course, everybody knows this movie was delayed multiple times due to the COVID pandemic. I believe the producers were very adamant that this was not going to go direct to video. This was going to be viewed on the silver screen. They were very adamant about that, which I can understand it. It's James Bond. So I heard a little bit about what might be happening or what might be ramping up for Daniel Craig's swan song. And as soon as they even uttered the phrase of we have all the time in the world, I'm like, Oh, boy. <laughs> somebody gonna die. <laughs> oh. Yeah, somebody gonna die. It's gonna be that type of movie. And sure enough, from that pre credit scene, they started throwing the kitchen sink vibes at you to where, I mean, there was a pretty brutal chase scene with the car, pretty brutal with the motorcycle, pretty brutal with the emotion, too. But before I go too long... Let's talk about the credit scene and the theme song. The theme song was No Time to Die. It was performed by Billie Eilish. We'll start with Pat. I, since I know the general leanings of my crew here, so we're going to start high and we're going to descend a little bit into, <laughs> you know, other stuff. Let's the just pit say of that. despair. Pat, yeah, yes, the pit oh. of despair, mayhaps. I won't spoil it. I will start with Pat and we'll go from there. Pat, what did you think about the pre-credit scene and the theme song of the movie, No Time to Die? 
as far as the visuals go, I liked it. You can see that they kind of brought a lot of elements of previous Bond movies, present and past, into it. Do you guys remember, did we cover this song when we went through the Bond songs at all, or we did not? We I did can't, not. I don't think we did, right? We did not. No. Okay. We did on so, the alternate Bond songs. Yeah, we, yeah, we did on the cover versions and stuff, yeah. 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 Okay. This is Billy Eilish version of it. This was my second time hearing the song. The first time I heard it was when I first watched the movie in the theaters. So, eh, you know, it's, eh, that's all I got to say on this one. So, starting high, Delvin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, is it memorable? No, not for me. Okay. Jared. Oh, it's memorable for me, Pat. <laughs> but for all the wrong reasons. Okay. Like you said, Pat, graphically, the sequence, yeah. very pretty, just like the rest of it. This is like the prettiest James Bond film that's ever shot. Like I said, I think it's a good looking sequence. No beef with it at all. The song actually, you know what? I might be picking it up a little bit from Pat. I will start by saying it is my least favorite Bond song. It soundly defeated Sam Smith's writing on the wall for my least favorite. But thanks to the cover versions we listened to, and we listened to one, and I don't know if Alan can remember her name. It was a Welsh opera singer, and he's shaking his head. We can't remember. It was a Welsh opera singer who sang it. I thought the song was really good. So I guess I'm just not a Billie Eilish fan. My advice to producers going forward is, I was about to say, don't chase the young crowd sound. But I guess I can't say that because I like the AHA song, and everybody loves the Duran Duran song, and that was chasing the young crowd sound. So eh, maybe I'm not right on that, but. I guess I'm just not a Billie Eilish fan. Again, I always I always joke about sing to me, don't mumble whisper to me. Because I, I discovered I liked the rhythm and I liked the lyrics. I think were very good. I just need them sung to me like Shirley Bassey sings to me. That's it. With that, I'll pass it to Alan. So, yeah, I agree with everybody on the visuals of the opening credits sequence. Great callbacks. Subtly done. Sometimes when they've done callbacks in the credit sequences before, they haven't been as subtle. But again, this one paid nice homage to the whole of the franchise and really evoked, I think, several parts of it. So literally from the Dr. No, Dots through to Skyfall. But yeah, I thought that was actually a really good, nicely done in terms of the visuals. In terms of the song, I actually like it. I enjoy it. It's probably a mid-range Bond song for me. I think that they probably wrote it having seen that 14-minute opening sequence and not necessarily the rest of the movie. Those lyrics seem to very clearly match that 40-minute opening sequence. But I, I like it. I quite like some of Billy. I don't like all of her stuff, but I like some of her stuff. So it wasn't really a huge shock to me listening to her do it. I love the melody, and I love the way that they intertwine the melody in through the rest of the score. I think they did a great job with that. So I was actually quite happy with it, and I think it works well within the confines of the movie. I've been pleasantly surprised about uh how, how this has gone so yeah I, I was i was incorrect you know my order from high to low so but <laughs> that said <laughs> jason still away, crashes jason. into the side of a mountain <laughs> yeah i think this is really good good song and that's what i think in no that's time to die, to die. <laughs> Yeah, probably 
the lowest one of the lowest ranking songs for me and not just because i can't understand a word that young lady is saying but uh, when i actually did sit and listen to the lyrics and read the lyrics there have been several bond songs that have like a lovey-dovey type of thing like nobody does it better it was kind of like a love song but there's still like the spy element the nobody does it better the spy who loved me for your eyes only, you know, the secrecy, like a secret love. But there was always like a tie to bond or espionage or something. And this just seemed to me like a teenage breakup song. And that's what really bothers me about it. I'll stop there before I bring the mood down. Maybe we should have ended with that one. Absolutely not. Whole purpose of this is to get everybody's opinion. So if that's where everybody's opinion is, that is where everyone's opinion is. Uh, very quickly, as for mine, I didn't see an issue with the song. I can understand the words, so I, I didn't have quarrel with that either. It absolutely fit with the mood and the theme of the movie. I thought that it went from a very touching scene. They went from basically having a honeymoon-type getaway together to vowing to basically never seeing each other again with Bond feeling betrayed. And then it enters into a song that talks about that betrayal. I'm not sitting here saying that I thought it was the best song ever. I always smile because I saw some tweet years ago about Billie Eilish. Someone said that it sounds like she makes haunted carousel music, which forever will be hilarious to me. But when I heard the song for the first time, when it, you know, before all the COVID madness and we thought that we would be getting the movie earlier than we did. And I first heard the song, I was like, well, you know what? She did go for it. It's not like she just, in my opinion, it's not like she just mailed it in or anything. I thought uh, her brother wrote it and I thought that she gave a good performance. I'm hesitating to do it, but since this is following the style of rookie agents, sort of, we're going to have to rate this song, gentlemen. On a scale of one to seven, Here's a reminder of the rating system. Seven, you loved it. It shook your martini. Six, excellent. Five, very good. Four, good. Three, just okay. Two, not so good. And one, (laughs) you hated it. It stirred your martini. Jared, go for it. All right. I said it's my least favorite, but we're also in a universe of Bond. So it's automatically better than a lot of other things. (laughs) Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I always say, even my least favorite James Bond film, I like more than a lot of other films. So I'm not going to give it a one. I can't say I hated it. I can't say I listened to it. It was like, you you go to hell and you die, you know, or anything like that. I will bump it up to a two. It's a martini that I picked up like like at a gas station, but it was surprisingly good for a gas station martini. (laughs) So I will will start us off with a two. If I was you, I'd probably end with uh, Alan on this. Yeah, but I'm not caring about the low to high at this point. So I'm going to go to Jason. Oh, man. I'm sweating this one. There are things I like about it. I really like the orchestral portions of the song. I think it is well written. I think the lyrics are simple. Ultimately, my problem with the song, like Alan said, I never really bought into the chemistry of Craig and Sado. I thought that the way that they split at the end of that well, it just seemed very contrived and sudden. The story led us to believe that they had more of a, 
commitment to one another than than they did. And then when it leads into that song, I was still kind of churning over how they parted between not really understanding the lyrics when I first heard it and just kind of really trying to wrestle with how that relationship ended. It struck me the wrong way. So I say all of that to say at the end, it is still pretty well put together. It beats all time high. I'll say that. And I will give it a three. So slightly better than a gas station martini, we move it all over to Pat. I am at a three. I need to hear it more. That's the thing. I just don't hear it a lot. Maybe because mainstream music, do they play a lot of mainstream music? I don't know. So I'm, I'm with Jason at a three. It's okay, but there's room for me to move it up down the road some more. Yeah, if we do the whole thing as far as re-rating the songs, because I think that songs, they can't stay static. You know, sometimes a song hits your ear a different way. Sometimes you rate one rate songs differently. So I'm with you there. I got you. Alan, your turn, sir. Like I said, for me, it's a mid-range song. I like what Billie Eilish does, but just going back to the fact that we've heard other people do it, if we're rating the song itself, I think it's actually a really good song and it's actually got a really good melody to it. I think I'm going to give it a five for the song itself because I actually think it's a pretty good, nicely put together, well-written, beautifully orchestrated song. I don't dislike the Billie Eilish one. I quite like it, but I think the, the song itself is stronger than the performance, a bit like we've had a, with a couple of other Bond songs in the past. So I'm going to give it a five. I remember rating uh, the Garbage song, The World Is Not Enough. I think I gave it a five. And what I said on it was, Shirley Manson could not have performed that song better. I didn't think she was necessarily the strongest singer, but between the orchestra and her voice, like she just nailed it. And if I had to go back again, I'd give it a six because it was even better than that. And I say that because I'm with you, Alan. I'm going to give it a five as well, because I like the song. Like, yeah, you're not going to be hearing this song at a club or anything. It sounds like a breakup song. I agree with Jason on that. It is. It's a breakup song. It's a slower song. But I kind of like ballads and I like slower songs. So I don't mind that. I, I will say this. I'm thinking if this next Bond movie that comes out is going to be kind of a reboot, you're probably going to get a more upbeat. They're probably going to get a more upbeat, happier Bond song because the last two or three have been a little bit slower ballady, but it kind of matched the mood, I think, that Daniel Craig wanted to have for his Bond. As a quick note, that Welsh artist was named Ellen Williams. Uh, just in case uh, you were wondering or were shouting at the podcast, why didn't they get that right? We, we got it right. Eventually. That's how we roll here on Royal Gaines. And now it's time to talk about the movie itself. We talked pre-credits. We've talked the credit scene. We've talked theme songs. But now, meat of the movie itself. We got two rounds here. We're going to talk some highs and lows. And it looks like there's going to be some spirited discussion. We're going to start off with Jared. Jared, what do you have for the main portion of the movie? Give me a high or low, or what the, you know. All right, I will start with a high. Spoiler alert, folks. If you haven't seen this movie, we're about to spoil the heck out of it, because I'm going straight to the end. A lot of people in the James Bond community would give the end a low. There's a lot of people in the James Bond community that, here comes the spoiler, so pause if you're going to, don't like that James Bond died at the end. What? Uh, so, oh, Alan never saw it. <laughs> he just revealed. <laughs> he fell asleep 45 minutes. 
Alan's a faker. He's a faker. <laughs> He's a phony. When I first watched it in the theater, I didn't like it. I mean, I, I just don't like the concept of killing James Bond. I just don't like it. When I first saw it, it seemed very Craig. I feel like Daniel Craig really wanted that to happen. I can't prove this, but I suspect he said that was a requirement for his return. That's actually well documented. That he oh, is it? Yeah. I, 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 I'm not a big Bond fan. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's a faker. I'm a phony. <laughs> I didn't know that. So that felt a little selfish. It felt a little, I don't know, like, uh, you know, I'll only do it if I'm the one that gets to kill the character. It, the character is way bigger than you, dude. So at first, that's a low. But I really appreciate the way the storytellers did it, because for those of us who also know our Fleming know that he died almost exactly the same way as he died, air quotes, in the novel, which I think led to You Only Live Twice, right? That's the whole reason he came back in You Only Live Twice, if I'm remembering my novel. Jason's he, he read di- more recently. He died in You Only Live Twice and then came back in Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah I got the, my, end, my... the ending of this one is very close to the ending of the novel You Only, you only Live Twice. Live twice. Yeah. yeah. Reflecting on that, I'm going to turn that low into a high for me. I really appreciate that they did that because they gave that emotional and gripping death scene that I guess daniel wanted so we got what he wanted but they did it in a fleming way and because they did it in the fleming way that means they can bring him back just like fleming did now do i think they'll do that no i think they're going to reboot from here i don't think they're going to continue his story in a japanese fishing village i don't think that's going to happen but i appreciate the flemingism that they put into it and it really made me do a 180 on that original feeling i had of i don't like this to oh, wait, they're actually quite leaning on legit source material, so I'm okay with it. I like that. That was very well said, Jared. We could probably make that an entire round itself, but I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yes. I, will, I won't confine us to that. I'll pass it off to Jason. You spoke up. Speak about whatever it is that you want, but if you want to expound upon what Jared did and kind of give your opinion on that, I don't really blame you. I think what Jared said was well stated, and I agree 100%. What I want to focus on, this is really tough. I've struggled to prepare for this because there's so much that goes on in this movie. So I got to kind of say what bothers me about the Craig era to set up my high. So bear with me for a minute. So the Craig era starts with Casino Royale which I still think is one of the better Bond movies in the franchise. And it sets the theme where he has just become a double O agent. He's a young go-getter, up-and-comer. Then we go to Quantum of Solace, which is really a continuation of Casino Royale as he continues to deal with the death of Vesper. By the end of Quantum, we're led to believe that he sorted all the stuff out. He's ready to get to work, right? He's ready to go. Queen country, yada, yada, yada. Then we go to Skyfall. And now he's too old for this ass. And I'm like, what happened here? Because he just started work. And now he's too old. And then he gets shot. And then he goes rogue again in that movie. So then there's a new M at the end. And I'm like, okay, so this, now he's ready to go to work, right? Now he's Bond. Oh, but wait, because he gets a videotape or something from the old M that says, go kill this fool, but go rogue for me. So, so he just goes rogue again, Inspector. And I set all this up because we see Felix Leiter twice. 
you know, in this whole time. We see Q a handful of times. Money Penny gets a little more more screen time, but you never get a sense of the camaraderie, that kind of family element that you get from the Roger Moores or the Sean Connerys with the M as the father figure and and Money Penny is the nurturer and Q is the crazy uncle and close friend. You don't get that through this whole series. And it's something that I really missed. And one thing they did right, and it's a credit to the screenwriters, they actually made, and I'm going to say it for the record, I liked Millennial Q in this one. And I felt like they had a history. I felt like Money Penny had a history. I felt like M had a history. And I felt like Felix and Bond had shared many adventures together, even though G did, I couldn't see it on the big screen, which is where, where I wanted to see it. They managed to fill that in and give me that feeling somehow. So it was just really good writing that they were able to manage all that together to make it feel like, hey, it's a gang coming back together. Although I felt like I was cheated through all of the Craig era of actually seeing that, if that makes sense. So that's my high. Credit to the writers for bringing in M, Q, Money Penny, Felix, and making me feel like, okay, there must have been a series of movies between, I don't know, Spectre and Now or Skyfall and Spectre, where a lot of stuff happened and there was a lot of chemistry and a lot, a lot of interesting things that happened that I couldn't see. I felt that chemistry somehow just through the writing of this movie. I know that's long-winded, but I didn't know how else to set that up. Pat? Well, I'm actually kind of glad you went to me after Jason's because I want to, again, play off of kind of what he's talking about. I'm going to set the stage here for you guys. Um, You know, me and Delvin kind of came into the bond later on. So I want to kind of relate this as you kind of like the bond that you've been around or, or know more of, right? And so my bond in getting into this is the Craig bond. Cause that's when I was like, Oh yeah, it's a movie. I can go see this and I know what it's all, you know, what's going on now. So I'm more invested into the Craig bond because, you know, that's my bond. I have somebody to talk with now and do all that where I think, you know, Alan, Jared and Jason, they've been watching the bonds for a long time. So this Craig era isn't their bond. I, you know, I don't mean to say it in that kind of a way, but, Maybe that's the feeling they have. So I go into it with some fresh eyes and I'm also going into it with, hey, what if I just went in with the mentality of that this is an alternate Bond universe? So when you go through the movies like Jason kind of did, you do see elements taken as a nod or a, hey, let's expand a little bit more on this of the previous movies that came before. Let's have a beginning and then an end and just kind of, you know, have a good opening chapter and then a final chapter at the end where you can go, oh, so maybe if Bond's life in some of the other ones would have go this way or that way, here's what you would come up with. And so that's the way I look at this Craig era is, to me, it's an alternate Bond universe compared to the other ones because the other ones never really had a, a beginning and an end, right? When Dr. No starts off, Bond's already, you know, a, a seasoned agent at the time. I think you're right, Jason, too, is there's some good stories that could probably be told in the Craig era there 
but they kind of maybe leave that to your imagination or maybe somebody can put some stuff together with some novels to fill those blanks in to make you feel like, you know, what actions are missing here between some of those movies, you know, with Felix as well, too. There must have been some really good stuff that those guys did together to have that bond grow so deeply between them. Just some of that similarities, too, you know, with Felix dying, you know, that's as a nod and a wink to License to Kill. So many different things, you know, we have all the time in the world, that going on, and oh, it's just, it just reminds me of bits and pieces of all these other movies that they wanted to sprinkle in here and just kind of make it its own little world for you to kind of watch and see it go through. I'm going to just personally say I'm, I'm really loving these perspectives. Pat, it's not like we're judging no, <laughs> comments no. or whatever, but I thought that that was a great, your, your comment and your perspective on it was great because you're right. The first Bond that I watched, I believe, was GoldenEye. And I had no sense of the history of it or whatever. Like, and we discussed yeah. that back on Rookie Agents. I had no idea at all that in some ways this was like a save our ship movie for the Bond franchise at the time. And so someone like Jared, when watched it with just absolute enthusiasm and Jason, and I'm sure Alan did too. And <laughs> like, and I was just like, oh, what's another James Bond. Bond movie? Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. So you're right. Like Daniel Craig was in a sense kind of the first one where I went to and kind of started getting an idea of the bond. So I, I like your take on that. So we go from one of the least experienced guys, along with myself, of course, to the most experienced guy with Alan to close us out for round one. Both Pat and Jason picked up on stuff that I wanted to talk about very very briefly. You both just mentioned Felix. For me, the Felix scene was great. The writing was great. The acting was great. The chemistry between those two was great. And it did make me feel like Felix had been in all six Daniel Craig movies, but he hadn't. He'd actually only been in two, but that was just that sort of brought that to the fore. And you did really get that feeling, as you said, Jason, of sort of the gang getting back together, I think, really well. And to your point, Pat, yes, if you think about it, Daniel Craig is actually, in terms of number of years, not number of movies, but number of years, the longest serving Bond actor. So there's a whole generation where the only Bond that they do know is the Daniel Craig ones, and they've got no real reference for anything else. And like you, I've always thought of these Daniel Craig ones, to put it in comics terms, as a sort of spin-off miniseries from the main one. You know, I thought this was a good end to that six-issue arc of Blonde Spy Guy. For me, he was never James Bond, other than very briefly at the end of Casino Royale. He never came over as my vision of James Bond, but the Daniel Craig movies have their own tone, their own sensibility, their own way of doing things, I think, that worked as a whole for those. It's not my particular thing in terms of James Bond, but if you look at them as a standalone mini franchise, I think it works quite well. And in this one, I think Daniel Craig actually got to act in this one, which I don't think he necessarily did in some of the other ones. So I totally take your point, Pat, about looking at these Daniel Craig movies and this being a good bookend, starting with Casino Royale and booking in this thing. Even if some of the, the chapters in the middle were missing, at least this one made us think that we'd seen some stuff that maybe we hadn't. So I think that was good. But the one thing I did want to I want get, get away from all this high-flying stuff and get down to some of the action. For me, one of the highlights of this movie was the action sequences. I mentioned that when we were talking about the pre-title sequence. And the one I really love is the one in the forest where Bond takes down that pursuing army of vehicles and motorcycles and stuff, just armed with a battered old Toyota Land Cruiser and a sidearm. No gadgets, 
It's just him being a trained soldier, fighter, spy, uses the natural terrain. He uses things like logs or the, the way the road slopes or, you know, that you can push a, a Land Rover up, up a slope and make it fall over. He uses the logs to actually trip one over. And then when one comes over, he uses the, the winch wire off it to then disarm the motorcycle that had to hurt. Oh yeah, dead, God, didn't it? Yeah. that was coming though. Come on, in a forest <laughs> with some, you know. Yeah, but I just loved that whole sequence. I thought it was really great. The only slight down for me was the fact that Nomi was meant to be trailing the bad guy, and the bad guy was in the fight. I would have loved Nomi to have turned up in that fight and helped Bond towards the end. It would have made her feel a bit more special. But other than that, I just thought that was a brilliantly done, brilliantly choreographed, brilliantly staged, and it really showed Bond being an agent in the field, literally in the field, doing what he does best. So yeah, for me, I can rewatch that forest fight sequence over and over again without watching the rest of the movie. There was one part in the pre-credit scene that also speaks to his tactical nature of where he is one man out in the open on a bridge and there's like a car coming at him and it's about to run him over And he looks and sees that little small triangle space area and he goes and ducks into it where the car can't hit him. And it's just like, in order to be that tactical and just be so aware of your surroundings, and this was an agent that had been out of action for a while, showed his acumen. And that is something that's incredible. That's one thing that I really, really loved about Daniel Craig's movies is that his bond was a little gritty. You know, like, obviously, Roger Moore's beloved. Never, ever, ever, ever will down Roger Moore. But there are no butt kicks of doom here. This dude got down and gritty, like, when it came to his fights. I like seeing that tactical nature because I would almost say that the fight scenes of today almost demand it. I don't think people are going to tune in to see Steven Seagal anymore on the big screen. They're going to want their fighters to actually look like they can competently and capably fight, which means that they're going to have to undergo some fight training, which means that it's going to actually translate on the big screen. So I always like that about Daniel Craig. Uh, We will start back again with round two with Jared. Uh, I will take a what the borderline negative on this one on my final round. It bugs me that I feel like Lashana Lynch's character got shortchanged. Here, here. Second aid, third aid, whatever, yeah. The biggest misstep that I saw, two actually. First of all, I think the writers didn't serve her very well. She got some of the more eh kind of lines, I thought. Not too great. You know what time it is. It's time to die. Okay, give her the Roger Moore lines, I guess. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. But the biggest swing and a miss, I think that they did here, is they tried to make her like James. She's going to wear these fancy clothes and she's going to drive the super cool car and be super smooth and all that. Don't do that. To me, that shrinks her character. Like, oh, here is the attempted copy-paste version of James Bond, just with a different actor. I would have totally had her dress down, driving a dang Civic or whatever, and I would have used that to throw it in Bond's face. 
I would have had her dressed down in a Civic, drive up, and Bond like, you know, snarky Bond, oh, nice car. And then her come back with, yeah, what part of secret agent is complicated for you? <laughs> like, our whole point is not to stand out, right? I would have loved to mm-hmm. see them do that and make her her own character instead of this, it's James Bond 2.0. And that is the biggest disservice, I think, the movie did that character. And, and it, it bugs me to this day. We got some amens on this, and I want to hear that take. Jason, go. Yeah, I think back to all the other times that we had other double O's on set with James Bond, right? And the one that sticks out to me is Trevelyan and Goldeneye and how cool that was. When you get two double O's going hammered down on some bad guys, that's what you pay that money to see. Lashana Lynch never got that da 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 moment. She deserved a da 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 moment. And the moment that she got put on babysitting detail for Bond's girlfriend and child <laughs> sitting out while Bond goes through that whole complex and, and engages in all those gunfights, heck no. She should have been in there running and gunning side by side with him. Give her that moment. I have spoken. Indeed, you have. I agree completely. She never had a moment that made me feel like she was a double O. In fact, and I'm going to, this is going to be unpopular, I think they should have taken Paloma out of the movie and had Nomi do the cool-ass infiltration of the Spectre meeting and kick ass with all those guys. Because if I'd have seen her do that, I would have gone, she's a double O, she deserves to be a double O. But she didn't do anything. Like I said, in the forest fight, she never turns up in the forest fight, even though she's literally in the area. She's always like 15 minutes behind. Right. Yeah, she's 15 <laughs> minutes late, driving around, just giving Bond a lift. Like you say, babysitting duties. And then we get the whole stupid double O what supposed running gag, which actually just completely demeans her character. So, yes, I think she was poorly served by the plot. This is what I meant earlier on when I said undeveloped characters. It was a great opportunity to do something really special, and they just completely missed it. I could see a little of that, uh, you know, in that fight with Palomi. Obviously, Palomi is the one that's really kicking ass in that. <laughs> I would want to see more of that action going on, uh, you know, and in some of that stuff, too, is like, whoa, I'm just going to drive forward and hit this. And break, hit that building or whatever so the guy falls down right in front of her. I thought that was funny. But it seemed like Naomi's double O was maybe like just fresh, but then she made a comment that, no, she's been doing it for a couple of years now or whatever. So it's like, eh, really? Have you been that long? I don't know. But, you know, I want to say I did enjoy the action sequences that, that were in here. Uh, there were evenly spread it out, I thought. A lot of tactics going on. Very well done with the action scenes. Okay. We're going to get back to you, but let's go to Jason now for his round two. For round two, I'm going to go with a low for the villain. Rami Malek is a fine actor, and and I don't think he acted poorly, but I just never kind of glommed on to his motivation or what the plot actually was. Because we're kind of led to believe at the beginning that his motivation is revenge against Spectre that killed his family. And he gets that revenge by the midpoint of the movie. Then, for some reason, he also wants to get this technology, this this viral agent, 
not really quite sure why. I'm not really sure what his intentions were with Madeline. He goes to a great length to abduct her, only to just kind of let her go in, in the final act of the movie. He seems initially very interested in the little girl, and then, yeah, meh, lets her go. I didn't understand, like, is he trying to just sell these weapons to the highest bidder? Is he trying to target out certain elements of the population? It's almost like they wanted to have a... You have those Bond movies that are very personal, like License to Kill, whereas Mano a Mano... Bond versus Sanchez. And then you have those movies that are like global threat, like Moonraker. And this one seemed like it wanted to be both and really, to me, didn't solidly deliver on either. Getting head nods uh, from the more experienced members. But Jared, you already talked, so you can't say anything else. You shut it. You keep your mouth closed. I, shut I, your I, damn I, mouth. I, no, no, shut it. Put it. Shut it. No, uh-uh. Quiet. Right. Zip it. <laughs> Alan, riff off of Jason or golf into your own field if you so wish. Actually, I, yeah, I was going to talk about Safin's strange motivations when I talked earlier about undeveloped plot lines. This, this for me was the big one. One, the timing never worked. I can never work out the time jumps from Madeline being a young girl. Safin seemed to be the same age when she was a young girl than when she was as an adult. And I don't know, I just couldn't figure that out. But also that sudden jump from this is a revenge plot to I think, like you said, I'm going to develop this and sell it to these mysterious people on a yacht, but why and who they were and stuff. It just seemed very confused and never really developed. And it was actually interesting watching it with the subtitles on this time, because I'm getting old. There was parts where it seemed like Safin was actually giving, if you believe this labeling on the subtitles, it was Safin that was giving orders to the Spectre guys who broke in to the facility at the beginning. So does that mean the guy with the bionic eye was working for Safin all the way along because I thought he'd only recruited him partway through? So it all just got very confusing. What the villain's motivation was, where he was involved, and and why the switch. So I didn't understand that. So I totally agree with you, Jason, on that one. Um, For me, my other what there is, what the heck happened to Spectre? Spectre went from, it had its own subsidiary called Quantum, we have people everywhere, to now we have enough people to stand in the parking lot. It's... (laughs) You know, they can all suddenly fit in a ballroom. And the other part was, if the reason they were there that reduced in numbers was because Safin had been killing them, wouldn't have MI6 noticed that Spectre was being systematically killed off over those 10, 15 years, whatever the, the time frame was. And if they thought somebody was doing that, wouldn't they have reached out to him and said, hey, maybe this is somebody we need to ally to because he's gradually killing off members of Spectre, which is in our interest. So the whole Spectre subplot, again, didn't make really much sense to me and the way Spectre was organized and run. I won't start down the whole Blofeld rabbit hole either. So, um. <laughs> Oh, man, but what a weak sauce ending for one of the greatest villains of all time. I'm not going there on that one, Jason. <laughs> really? Because yes. it was pretty weak sauce, Alan. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it was, but no. Christoph Waltz, that... Blofeld, greatest villain of all time. No. The guy phoned it in. Terrible. That's all I'm yeah. going to say. Don't worry, I have more insights. I want to think that Quantum is like the fast food chain. Oh. Stay with me on this, Alan. Because I've learned that top performing fast food chain restaurant managers get invited to like a vacation thing in like Hawaii every year. 
So maybe that's what we were seeing. The top performing guys. Jordan, did you do this? Got invited to the party. <laughs> I, I have a simpler explanation than that. It was a really big ballroom. <laughs> there was annexes you couldn't see. There was like lots going on. That, that you have it. dance floors it, everywhere. It's, <laughs> I mean, have you haven't you heard of Legionnaire's disease? I mean, that's <laughs> there you go. It went viral. We hit all events. There, there's a party. Dead people. All right. Thanks for that, Alan. We'll pass it off to Pat. As Jason was saying, you know, what was the plot? What was the evilness that was going on here? The way I was looking at it, Remy, I'm just going to call him Remy. I don't know what his, what the guy's name was or whatever. The bad guy here. Uh, he was mad because Spectre killed his family. So he went to go kill Mr. White, but found out that White already died or whatever. So he's getting back at Spectre throughout the years. And so maybe uh, we see Spectre dwindling down. But at that time, too, Bond and the, the MI6 team are slowly taking out Spectre as well, too. So you, that's why they could only, you know, maybe fit in that little rented out hotel area there that they were staying at. So that everything was getting more weaker. And so now that he got rid of Blofeld and everybody, his next rival would be Bond because he got to do what Bond wanted to do, take Spectre out for himself as well, too. So once that comes into play, now he wants to play God, but he said he didn't want to play God and, you know, maybe rid the world of other maybe so named Spectre people. So maybe he was letting them come to buy, but knowing that it was just going to wipe those people out and then go, look at me, I'm a hero. Because they were talking about, you know, who's the hero here? Is it me or is it you? He wanted to be somewhat of a hero by saying, I'm wiping the world of specter or wiping the world of just evilness will start a whole new world at this point and i think what he wanted was the the blood or whatever the nano whatever he wanted that well he he was using the kid to protect him from bond going after him or whatever you know that that was his thing that he had over bond then at that time that's my thought on that saffin pictured himself as the good guy in the story of course you know the phrase everyone's a hero in their story and after he got his revenge slash rid the world of Spectre, he wanted to continue his father's legacy in that poison garden. So he had an opportunity to sort of just become one of the most powerful men on earth, especially that he got rid of Spectre at that point. And so I think that good guy narrative just kind of went wayward at that point. And he just used Madeline and Matilde to kind of further his means. That's it. I do understand uh, what Alan and crew are saying about possibly the plot being a little bit convoluted. It definitely seemed like a twisted tale concerning two twisted people, those two twisted people being Bond and Matlin. Spectre kind of dealt with Bond's past a little bit. And then you had No Time to Die that dealt with Matlin's past. Whether you buy that or not, I don't know. Now, that said, we've talked a decent amount about the movie. I mean, there may have been things that were worth mentioning. So I'm going to just give it one last parting shot just around the table real quick. Jared, did you have anything else that you want to add? You know what? Maybe I'll start a theme for as we parting shots, but I'm going to do Jared makes the movie better. What I would have done to try to make it better. I already aired my my make it better plan for um, Lashana Lynch's character. but. There's so much confusion in, about this whole plot thing is I would have not tied Safin to 
Madeline. I would have had him doing his kill specter thing. And then in the process of doing that, whether by design or accidentally kill, eh, I would, I wouldn't kill Felix. That's just me kill or seriously injure Felix. And that's all you need to get bond on his ass license to kill style. That's all you need. If you want bond to go kill this guy, hurt Felix. That's it. It doesn't have to be convoluted back when she was 12 and he was, Eternally 45, I guess, Alan. <laughs> out. Like, I don't, he seemed to be the same age no matter when. It got so muddled and it was like the uh, the writers were trying to outsmart themselves. It's like, that's how I would fix it. I could go on and on, but this is a fast round. So that's Jared's quick fix. And if anyone else wants to pick up on that theme and do a quick fix, I encourage it. Or if you want to do your own thing, I'm fine with that too. Hey, hey, I'm hosting this show. So yeah, if anyone wants to pick up on Jared's thing, you know, that's cool. But if you want to do your own thing, that's cool too. Alan has his hand raised. Alan, go for it. I actually think what you just picked up on, Jared, is not just a problem with this movie. It's a problem with modern movie making where every damn character has to be related to every other character or have a connection with. It seems impossible in Hollywood today to just be able to tell a simple linear story. Ever um, since uh, Dr. Evil came out as Austin Powers' brother. It's, yeah, it's all I know. Down okay, yeah, I know. It just, it's I'm just... Dougie! <laughs> Every flipping movie, it's like, oh, somebody has to be somebody's mother or adopted so-and-so or, I don't know, it just, just goes way too far. Fast and Furious 9, here's a brother that you didn't talk about for the last eight movies who is a complete mirror of you, you know? So, yeah, it just, just drives me crazy. So. Quick on this one, like I said, I think it was a pretty good way to end cap the Daniel Craig era. But for me, it's very much a standalone from the rest of the Bond mythos. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Mm, I'll be uh, Freddie Gray. Mm. Jason? I think if I had my say, I would have taken Spectre out of it entirely. If that was going to be the ending of Blofeld with such a fine actor as... Christoph Waltz, I would rather have seen nothing, nothing of that. And given more story development time to uh, Rami Malek's Safin character, I think that would be my, my recommendation. I did enjoy the Cuba scene. I thought the Cuba scene showed Daniel Craig having a lot of fun. Uh, I'll, hmm. I'll add that bit in there. And it was nice to see a Bond in action having fun. Mm-hmm. I'll shut up. Pat, you won't shut up, though. I'm going to agree with Jarrett. Adding Jarrett to the movie would make it better. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was mentioned earlier on when we, were cut, when we were talking about the opening scene. And I think in every Bond movie, this is another character that has always been in it. And that is the locations, the scenery. Man. Just so beautiful to look at. I could rewind in some spots and look at it. And as Alan was mentioning, the fight scene in the woods, just the cinematic of that as well, too. So ominous and haunting. The minute you go in there and all of a sudden it's just fog everywhere. And it's just like, oh man, this place is scary. It's like, don't go in the woods. Get out of the woods. You know, you don't Camp want to be Crystal there. Lake. What the <laughs> what <laughs> that opening area that they were with how oh, it's just cinematics in this uh the shots that were done the broad shots the big shots uh-huh. Man, just yeah. just eye candy to look at a prettiest bond film ever possibly man there's a fun fact that i saw on how daniel craig 
was sort of at odds with the director about how he was shooting. And the director wanted to film these long takes. And Craig thought that it would be better if it were more short to get like more example of the action. But obviously the director convinced him otherwise. And it wound up with scenes like sort of like that battle at the end where Bond very systematically is taking everybody out to get to the blast doors in order to open it. And it turned out that that was a very, very good action scene. So I think you guys are giving a lot of credit to the director for how a lot of the shots and the scenes and everything turned out. I think that there's more that we could talk about this movie uh, in that, uh, you know, just the length of it alone, what it meant to the franchise. But thank you all for giving your thoughts and comments and on the subject. Uh, I'm going to move on to some fun facts before we go to the rating. No Time to Die had an estimated budget of $250 million. In the United States, it grossed $160 million. And worldwide, it grossed $774 million. Not too bad. Movie makes money, but of course, it's James Bond. What did you expect? There were three filming locations for the film, two locations in Scotland. I'm relying on Alan to correct me when I mangle these. Aviemore and Inverness. Close enough for government work. I'll take it. And Langvin, Oslo, Norway. While Anna de Armas was only on screen for about 10 minutes, she went through extensive training with firearms, machine guns, as well as a rigorous physical combat training regimen. And it showed uh, she was quite BA in that movie. Uh, anyone want to uh, give some comments to Paloma in this movie real quick? Because I don't think we got to talk about her somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's I tried to throw in the Cuban action scene at the end, but oh, how much fun was she? That was a great scene. And although I agree with Alan, it probably would have been better to to have Nomi in that role. Oh man! And I mean, I did, think that scene her a household name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say one of the things that I saw was Daniel Craig asked for her to be on the movie because they had a chemistry due to their work on Knives Out. So he asked for her to be a part of the movie. So she got to work and absolutely showed out in the 10 minutes that she had on screen. And last, no idea if he's going to, but Fukunaga would love to come back to direct another installment, saying he has a pitch if Bond decides to go the reboot route again. I'm just going to go ahead and move to the ratings system. As a quick reminder, again, seven martinis means that you loved it. It shook your martini. Six, excellent. Five, very good. Four, good. Three, just okay. Two, not so good. And one, you hated it. It stirred your martini. We're going to start with Pat. Pat, Ooh. what will you rate? No time to die. Being somebody that likes the Craig era, and I've kind of mentioned why in my opening. And when I went to watch this movie, and I've mentioned this before too, you guys know me when I watch a movie, I watch it later at night, so I may split it up. So I cut it in half. It's a two hour and 40 minute movie. That means an hour and 20 minutes. I can cut it in half and then decide if I want to go to bed or continue watching it. I continued to watch it for almost two hours, 40 minutes left to watch. So that to me tells me that this is way above just being good because it kept my interest and piqued my interest into wanting to continue to watch more. So with that being said, I'm at a very high five. 
high five. It's very good. I think I need a few more watchings uh, in order to maybe bump it up a little bit more. I just can't say it's excellent because of some nitpicks here and there, but I, I really enjoyed it. I understand, Pat. You just can't handle it. So you're giving it a high five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get it. <laughs> Jared gets it. Jared's also about to give us his rating. Okay. Uh, the end of the Craig era. Our friend Darren from the research and development team really put the Daniel Craig era into perspective for me. He said, it's one of those things where in the old days, we used to flip channels to watch TV. So if you were flipping channels and you landed on a Bond movie, you stopped. He said, if that was still a thing, I was flipping through channels and I landed on a Craig Bond movie, I'd consider stopping, but I might not. And I feel the same way. And, and what he was saying is they're just so heavy. The whole arc is heavy. So that's going to drag my score down a bit because as we were talking about before we started recording, in some ways, this is not going to make sense to a lot of Bond fans. I'd rather watch Die Another Day than any Craig film. Because it's bonkers. It's bonkers. At my age, I just like light and bonkers. I I've, I don't need heavy. I got enough heavy in real life. All right? So um, I like light and bonkers. So having said all that, I'm going to give it a three. It's slightly okay. better than that gas station martini. <laughs> <laughs> I don't loathe it. I don't hate it. But man, you know what? Peek behind the curtain. Every one of us here probably rewatched this movie for this episode, for this recording. I didn't. I'm going off of what I saw in the theater because I just... Couldn't put on the heaviness. He's a faker. I'm a phony. Right? No, I just couldn't. It's just too heavy for me. That's why I let in a three. Let's go to your brother mine, Weasel Skull. Jason, what would you rate? No time to die. Craig did bring a lot of strengths to the screen. His physicality we talked about. He had a great presence. I think by no time to die, he was wielding too much influence on some of the key decisions of, of the filmmaking. And the film suffered for it. I think Jared hit the nail on the head. I think he thought he was bigger than the character that he plays. And everybody on this podcast, I think, disagrees with that. But he did bring a lot of chops to it. I also give it a little bit of a curve because of COVID. You know, that film just got jinxed with release dates, game moved back and moved back. And so I give it a little bit of a mulligan there. At the end of the day, I'm at a five with Pat. I enjoyed it. There's actually some fun in this one that's missing from some of the heavier, heavier bonds. But then there are some pretty heavy elements in here, too. So five. Mr. Porter. So when I first saw this in the movie theater on opening weekend, I was gut punched by the emotion in it. I came out, really enjoyed it. In fact, Jill and I liked it so much. We literally went back the next day to rewatch it in the movie theater. And I still think it carries an emotional punch, but having now rewatched it several more times for other podcasts or doing the notes for the James Bond lexicon or uh, website or whatever. And then other rewatching podcast. Did I say that out loud? Sorry. <laughs> um, We're um, just going to skip over that. Let that go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But basically each time I watch it, I find more and more faults with it. So I know last time I ranked the Bond movies, this was in my top 10. I think if I ranked all the Bond movies now, it would probably be closer to the middle. I tend to find this with the Craig movies, that the more I watch them, the more faults I find, unfortunately. So I think I'm going to join most of you guys and put this on a five, which is sort of just slightly above the middle there. And wrapping up, I'm at a five. I don't know where I would rank it overall with the Bond movies. 
I'll I'll leave it with Craig Universe. Do I think it was the best Craig movie? No. Do I think it was a fitting in to the Craig Universe? Yeah, I do. It was. His bond was heavier. It was. It was heavier. It was darker. Maybe it's a sign of the times. Maybe that's what the life of a secret agent would be like. Death, murder, intrigue, seeing allies that you love die in front of you in your hands and you're still having to go on and carry on the mission. Heck, they did that at the end of the movie, right? Where everyone stopped for a second. They had a drink. They toasted. They mourned their fallen comrade. And it was like, right then, back to work. Because the mission continues. Because there are still bad guys to be taken care of. And that's not friendly business, you know? And so, Jared, I don't know if your James Bond is ever coming back. And you know I'm not saying that in any way of teasing or or any way of of anything other than saying like the nature of where we are now as to what people want to go to a movie to see might not be the Bond of old. So I'm very interested to see what this new James Bond is going to be like. It's interesting. It was a fitting into the Daniel Craig franchise for sure. It left me intrigued as to how they're going to continue with this canon. Everyone here is going to agree that you know James Bond absolutely is bigger than any actor. It's its own universe at this point, which the Broccoli family has done everything they can to take care of that character and keep him modern and keep the universe modern. So in this ever-changing world of technology and shadow realms of like, you know, literal dark webs and everything, like the whole nature of it's changed. I'm fascinated to see what it's going to be. I 100% agree. Like you have to have elements of family and fun into it. It can't be all dark and just tragic. But I don't know if we will see a Roger Moore or or Sean Connery, James Bond again. And I don't know whether or not that's for the better or worse. It really isn't for me to say, right? I guess I can, you know, I can say I'm a, I'm a Bond fan, but it's not really for me to say. Do you guys think that in overall, did it bring people to the Bond franchise? Did it bring people to... to not only go, okay, well, I like Craig, but what's these other bonds you talk about? Let me go look at that. What's these books that you guys talk about? Let me go, you know, let me go into that universe now. Did that bring what the Broccoli's wanted it to do in bringing people to the universe? It brought people to the theaters. The movie made almost a billion dollars. That B mark, that's almost that new mark of that successful movie. It brought people to watch it. But did it make people want to go read Ian Fleming? I don't know. And I actually don't think that I have the experience to speak on it, but we have three people who do. Jason, what do you think about Pat's question? I can only speak from the experience of watching the films with my son. You know, he grew up in the Craig era. He came to the theaters with me to see some of the Bond movies. He liked Craig. Craig was his Bond. When I walked him through the all the other Bond movies, he had very mixed reviews on some of them. But he loved Thunderball. He really loved License to Kill. 
you know, there were some that really stood out to him. So from that one anecdote, I can say that the Daniel Craig's, it opened the door for me to show him the other Bonds. Some he liked, some liked a little more than others. But overall, I think he, he enjoyed the series. And, and I made at least one more <laughs> Bond fan in this universe. So that's all I can speak to. And no way is he ever going to read those books or any books ever. <laughs> Alan, what do you think? I don't think No Time to Die specifically as a movie brought in people, say, the way yeah, that... Go- I, I meant the whole crew. Yeah, I was going to say the, the way that, say, Goldeneye did. I mean, Goldeneye had a huge impact on bringing in new people um, into the franchise. I don't think No Time to Die did. I don't think necessarily the Daniel Craig era did as a whole to that level. But I think, I mean, just anecdotally from people I know who got into it during the Craig era and then sort of became part of the wider Bond community and... Whenever Bond comes up with people who are not fans, if we're out to dinner or whatever, they usually ask questions about where things fit within their whole franchise. So there is an awareness that this is part of a bigger thing. Just today, I mentioned Fast and Furious today. Apparently, there was a remark that Vin Diesel made about Fast and Furious is now the longest running franchise in cinema history and was immediately bombarded with, um, I think you're forgetting three numbers, two hours and a seven. Um, so there's definitely a cultural awareness. I think the Craig era has helped maintain and maybe build on that and brought some new people to the franchise, but it's a great question, Pat. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but yeah, I think it had overall a positive impact on the franchise and a positive impact on the, on the community. But I still think GoldenEye is probably the one that literally brought in a whole new generation of Bond fans that I don't think we will see again. I don't think we'll see that sort of impact again Jerry. That video game man yeah Thanks. i was, I was yeah. say uh yeah yeah we're missing the is the one two punch yeah it's the one two punch golden eye was such a good resurgence and then golden eye the video game which actually came out about two years after the movie hit so hard it was like one two punch like just as the movie was kind of you know got home video and all that and then golden eye the video game comes in it and it just reignites all of that I really think that was where the big swing in the miss comes in the Craig era Yeah, is the video games just weren't there. I mean, he did one for those of you listening who may not know, there's a game called bloodstone. That's a Daniel Craig standalone story of James Bond. So you can play Craig as bond. It didn't hit like golden. I did, and it wasn't directly tied to a film. There's a couple that are directly tied to the films, but the, <laughs> Rumor behind the scenes, I can't, I don't have paperwork to back this up, is that basically Barbara doesn't like the violence of video games and doesn't want Bond associated with the violence of video games, which is why you've really only seen Bond in driving games and card games over the last couple of years. Like, we haven't had a Bond game proper in, I want to say, a decade now, if you can believe that. <laughs> so to speak to growing the audience, back to my nephew, the little weasel, He's a video game kid. Pretty much all the people of this generation are video game people, and you have to capture that market. And so, again, I I can't speak to did the Craig era bring in new Bond fans or not. I'm just kind of looking at it holistically using Goldeneye as the touchstone, like Gallon said. I don't think we'll ever see that again because it was a perfect one-two punch of a great movie to bring it all back. And then just as it's fading, boom, here comes the video game. And oh, my gosh, we all love Goldeneye again. Never had that. We didn't tap into that video game market. I think that was the biggest marketing swing and miss of this Craig era. 
Thanks for coming to my TED Talk on James Bond video games. (laughs) And that's the show. As a reminder to our audience, if you'd like to be a part of the show, you can send us your questions, comments, or trivia challenges to ohmspod at outlook.com or over on our Twitter page at ohmspod. If you like, you can even use the email. As a reminder, that's ohmspod at outlook.com to send us an audio recording of your question or comment, and we might even play it on the show. Please try to keep your audio file to around 30 seconds or less, and we would love to hear from you and make you a part of the show. Also, if you're an Apple Podcast listener, we greatly appreciate it if you left a review for the show. That will help raise the show's profile to attract more of the 007 family to this program. As a reward for leaving this review, we will share your entire review on an upcoming episode of MI6 Rogue Agents. I want to thank all the Rogue Agents for joining me on this episode. But before we go, let's find out where the listeners can find us on the internet. Alan. Thank you, Delvin. For James Bond stuff, you can find me at Bond Lexicon on Twitter and at James Bond Lexicon on Tumblr and Instagram. And of course, there is the aforementioned James Bond Lexicon.online website, which is a companion to the James Bond Lexicon book, which you can get at Amazon and all good online book retailers. Jason? You can find me at Jason Albrick on Instagram. Jared? I am at Yard Sale Artist, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all at Yard Sale Artist. You can check out my wares at www.theyardsaleartist.com. Pat? Well, Jared, I'm glad you asked. You can find me on the Twitter at Christatos01. Delvin? You can find me on Twitter, D-E-E underscore R-A-Y 1977, or on Instagram at Delvin Ray. Thank you for listening. And we hope you have enjoyed this episode of MI6 Rogue Agents. If you've enjoyed this crew and want to hear more from them, but in the realm of comic books, check out the Longbox Crusade. Pat, where can that be found? Well, Devin, I'm glad you asked. You can find the Longbox Crusade at www.longboxcrusade.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and at YouTube, all under Longbox Crusade. So go and check us out. Subscribe, hit that like button, and follow Thanks, Pat. And thank you to the fellas for joining us on another dangerous mission. Thank you to the listeners who tuned in. If you'd like to leave a question or comment on this or any other episodes, feel free to contact the show on Twitter at OHMSPOD or email us at OHMSPOD at Outlook.com. We hope to hear from you soon. The next episode of MI6 Rogue Agents will feature Jason's Choice, but on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, we'll return. Was I stupid to love you? Was I reckless to help? Was it obvious to everybody else? Did I fall and fall alone? You are never on my side. Fool me once, fool me twice. Oh, you do.
when I was with Am in Tokyo, we had an interesting experience. Outtakes. Thank you, Miss Moneypenny. That's all, that's all. Let me, again, do a little bit of my perspective on this one. Um, From what I thought, the... Pat, could you do it from my perspective? Yeah, this all sucked. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) Way out of line. Ridiculous. (laughs) 